If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Acts chapter 4. We're in the book of Acts chapter 4. The title of the message is This is Not Socialism. Many have looked to this last section in the book of Acts as um, a socialist program, and I'm going to show you why and how it's not socialism. So Acts chapter 4, and we're going to finish that chapter, and then we're going to head on over to chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. So that's what we'll be looking at this morning as we're going through the book of Acts. Let's pray together. Father, we ask your blessing upon this time. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the word. We thank you, Lord, that in it contain all things that pertain to life and godliness. Lord, we thank you that you can open up our eyes to see things that we wouldn't see, and you're able to unclog our ears to help us to hear things that we wouldn't be able to hear. And and so, Lord, it is with that desire that we come to you that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit says to the church this morning. We thank you for the truths, Lord, that you have communicated to us, but we are not satisfied with that. Our desire is to grow in the grace and knowledge of your word and that our faith would continue to develop and to grow and that we would never get tired, Lord, of participating with you and cooperating with you and allowing you access into the depths of our being. And so, Lord, we pray that this time would be strategic on your part and that you would penetrate the depths of the blinders that at times we have on. Open up what you have for us this morning as we offer this time up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Coming out of Acts chapter 3 and 4, even chapter 2, they were assembled, the apostles, in the upper room. The Holy Spirit came upon them. They were baptized in the Holy Spirit. They were speaking in new tongues. People were there gathered in Jerusalem at the time for the Passover. So you had people from all over the world assembled in Jerusalem. And they hear this this noise. They hear something of a mighty rushing wind. And they hear these people speaking in their own dialects, the wonderful works of God. And they think that they're drunk. They think that they're intoxicated. Something's going on that that, whoa, how is this taking place? And what these, guys, these people must be drinking wine because we can hear them just babbling and they're, they're proclaiming something. And Peter shares a message and 3,000 are added to the church that day. Imagine one service where three people surrender their lives to the Lord. They go on in the next chapter, chapter three, and they're on their way to the temple to the uh, prayer meeting. And it's Peter and John, and they see this guy, and he's lame in his feet, born that way. And so they look down, and the guy looks up at them, and they're expecting that, you know, as they're, the guy's holding out his hand or whatever, expecting to receive some money. And Peter says, silver and gold we don't have, but what we have in the name of the Lord, Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he reaches his hand down, and he pulls him up, and The guy's ankle bones are restored and he's healed and the guy's leaping and rejoicing and praising God as he goes with Peter and John into the hour of prayer into the temple. And on the heels of that, the religious leaders see that and they they don't like it. 
Again, a crowd is being drawn to the apostles in this name of Jesus and the resurrection is being preached and God is doing this incredible work and when God is intent on doing a work in time and space, recognize that that work's going to be done. And so they sit before the council and the council is questioning what they did and how they did it and in what name they did it. And they want to accuse them. They have the power to be able to have them killed as they had Jesus crucified. And so Peter, in just this moment of boldness, just proclaims, we're not going to stop. We're not going to stop preaching in this name. We're not going to stop preaching the resurrection. We've come to believe. We know that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. And we're going to continue to do this. And the Lord adds another 2,000 to the church. And so the church is swelling and there's a legitimate problem. There, there's there's, there's a, a real live situation where all of these people are there and their needs are there as well, right? They, they need to be lodged. They need to be fed. And they don't want to go anywhere. They know God is doing this work in Jerusalem. And, and they came for one thing, but they found God in the midst of what's going on. And so on the heels of all that, that that's taking place, you just see this awesome thing. Picking it up now at Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that anything... of of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that they were sold, of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. And so there's this dynamic thing that's taking place within them where whatever they have, whatever possessions they have, lands, houses, they just recognize that the need was greater than their possessions. And so they sell them. And they take the money and they lay it at the apostles' feet and say, hey, There's needs that are represented here in the church as God is doing this incredible work. Why don't you guys just distribute this as you see fit? Verse 36, And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so one of the members, if you will, of the church is so touched by what's taking place, Joseph, who the apostles themselves would say, man, this guy's always encouraging people. Let's, let's name him Barnabas, son of encouragement. You know, he has a parcel of land, he sells it and he gives the money and he's being commended for it. People are looking on and, and it's a neat thing that's taking place. Now, Individuals have looked at this section of scripture, Acts chapter 4, 32 through 37, what we just read there, and they've said, look, right here in the Bible, you have communism, socialism, right? Marxist ideology. You have individuals that are 
coming together and all their money is pulled together and everybody's equal. This is the way it should be. This is what should happen. Let me give you a little history lesson. Karl Marx was born to German Jewish parents in 1818 and received his doctorate at age 23. He then embarked on a mission to prove that human identity is bound up in a person's work and that economic systems totally control a person, arguing that it is by labor that mankind survives. Marx believed that human communities are created by the division of labor. Something that's not within my notes is this Karl Marx, who was born in 1818, was born to two parents who were Jewish. And Marx, Karl's father, while he was working, trying to do his best to practice his Judaism, was basically going to be kicked out of the community because he wasn't a Protestant. And he was forced to convert to Lutheranism. And I'm sure Karl Marx, as as a boy, is seeing religion as something very negative that they wouldn't let that his father work in this community unless he would convert. And so he saw it as something bad. He saw religion as a drug. He called it an opiate that people were addicted to and that bad things could happen through religion. Our next paragraph, Marx studied history and concluded that society had for hundreds of years been based on agriculture. But the Industrial Revolution changed all that In Marx's mind, because those who had freely worked for themselves were now forced by economics to work in factories instead. This, Marx felt, stripped away their dignity and identity because their labor defined who they were, and now they were reduced to mere slaves controlled by a powerful taskmaster. This perspective meant that the economics of capitalism was the natural enemy of Marx. Marx surmised that capitalism emphasized private property and therefore reduced ownership to the privileged few. Two separate communities emerged in Marx's mind, the business owners or the bourgeoisie and the working class or the proletariat. According to Marx, the bourgeoisie use use and exploit the proletariate, proletariat, I'm sorry, with the result that one's person's gains is another person's loss. Moreover, Marx believed that the business owners influence the lawmakers to ensure their interests are defended over the workers' loss of dignity and rights. Last, Marx felt that religion is the opiate of the masses, which the rich use to manipulate the working class, the proletariat is promised rewards in heaven one day if they keep working diligently where God has placed them, subservient to the bourgeoisie. In the early earthly utopia Marx envisioned, the people collectively owned everything and all work for the common good of mankind. Marx's goal was to end the ownership of private property through the state's ownership of all means of economic production. Once private property was abolished, Marx felt that a person's identity would be elevated and the wall that capitalism supposedly constructed between the owners and the working class would be shattered. Everyone would value one another and work together for shared purpose. And so 
through all of this, what Marx came up with is this socialism where he can elevate everybody to be equal, seeing the evils in his mind of capitalism and what had taken place. But unfortunately, because Marx was influenced by the origins of the species guy, what's his name? Charles Darwin, he had removed God entirely from the picture. In his mind, seeing his father lose his job to religion, he thought religion was ugly and just became an atheist. And in that, once you remove God from the picture, you're going to end up with a man-made system. You're going to see the evils of that eventually, inevitably take over. There are at least four errors in Mark's thinking. First, his assertion that another person's gain must come at another person's expense is a myth. The structure of capitalism leaves plenty of room for all to raise their standard of living through innovation and competition. It is perfectly feasible for multiple parties to compete and do well in a market of consumers who want their goods and services. Second, Marx was wrong in his belief that the value of a product is based on the amount of labor that is put into it. The quality of a good or service simply cannot be determined by the amount of effort a laborer expends. For example, a master carpenter can more quickly and beautifully make a piece of furniture than an unskilled craftsman can, and therefore his work will be valued far more, and correctly so, in an economic system such as capitalism. Third, Marx's theory necessitates a government that is free from corruption and negates the possibility of elitism within its ranks. If history has shown anything, it is that power corrupts fallen mankind and absolute power corrupts absolutely. A nation or government may kill the idea of God, but someone will take God's place. That someone is most often an individual or group who, is being, who begins to rule over the population and seeks to maintain their privileged position at all costs. Fourth and most importantly, Marx was wrong that a person's identity is bound up in the work that he does. Although secular society certainly forces this belief on nearly everyone, the Bible says that all have equal worth because all are created in the image of the eternal God. That is where true intrinsic human value lies. I took on this challenge to be able to share exactly what Marxism is because we're living right now in a time and space here in America where I believe socialism is, again, rearing its head. And I believe that the next election will be driven by young people who are enamored with this romantic notion of socialism. They've seen the evils of capitalism. They've seen greedy individuals just claw their way to the top and through this greed, more and more of a desire to have more and more has brought us to where we're at. Any system of economics without God is going to be corrupt and and bankrupt and, and just ruined. And so that's why I went into that history and all of that stuff Again, as I mentioned before, many have seen this section in the book of Acts and they said, look, there it is, socialism. 
later on in history, church history, in the first century, Paul is going to have to address exactly what's taking place here. I believe what's taking place here is something that's neat. It's in this moment of time and space that God is doing this incredible work on earth that individuals that are, part of, that are a part of this work are recognizing the need that is present and they're willing to make sacrifices to be able to accomplish and contribute to the needs that are represented. They're not being forced by anybody to give their property, to sell their lands, and to give the money to the apostles. It's out of their own desire that they want to do this. They see a need, they recognize that they can be part of the solution to the problem, and they take responsibility there. Capitalism is neither elevated either as a system. It's just one of the best that um, you can work within to be able to do well in. And so there's no glorified or godly system of economics outside of being faithful to what God has um, done for you and given you the opportunity to be able to succeed within your culture, whatever that culture might be. And so may we be careful not to be enamored with these systems of men. May we be careful to recognize that the scriptures has much to say about these things. As we look at this specific situation, it says in verse 37 that they distributed to each uh, as anyone had need. Unfortunately, this generosity of the early Christians soon began to be abused. Later, the Apostle Paul taught regarding who should be helped and how they should be helped. Paul's directions were that, number one, the church must discern who is truly needy. There are individuals who are truly needy. In this culture, a widow would lose her means of income. She would be outcast by society having her husband die. Her husband was the predominant or sole breadwinner in that household. And if that widow had no children to be able to take her in, then she would be destitute. And God had a heart for widows in that culture. Over and over, he would make sure that the church looked out for widows and orphans, individuals who couldn't help themselves, individuals who were ostracized by the community. Today, we would say the Mayan culture is similar to that in Mexico. When you go to the border of Mexico and you see the people that are there selling and helping out, those are people who have been ostracized by the culture. And that's their only means of being able to support themselves. And so, again, God has a heart for those types of people. And we as the church need to discern between individuals who truly cannot help themselves so that we can help them and individuals who can but aren't willing Number two, if one can work to support himself, he is not truly needy and must provide for his own needs. Let's pull up 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. 2 Thessalonians. Can we pull that one up? 2 Thessalonians 3. I don't have it. I just, I'll let you do it. Second. This one is not 2 Thessalonians. Thessalonians. Did I lose my? If one can work to support himself, he is not truly needing a must. No, no, that's not it. Let me turn to it here. 
Second Thessalonians chapter 3, starting at verse 10. Paul writes, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you who uh, in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. And so here Paul is letting us know that there are individuals that are able to work, but they weren't. Some of these people in history, in church history, they were thinking, well, the Lord's coming back. Jesus ascended. We saw him go up. We saw him when we were waiting there in Jerusalem. And and the angels came and they told us that why are you looking up? This Jesus who you saw go up and disappear in the clouds, he's coming back. And so waiting for the Lord, they thought, well, they were going to wait while they folded their hands. And, and, And people were selling their properties and bringing food and putting shelter up for them. And so they were like, yeah, we're just waiting for Jesus to come back. And as they folded their hands and did nothing. And Paul is saying, no, that's not how you do that. If you have the ability to work, go to work. Provide for your needs. There are other scriptures in the Bible that will say that if you don't provide for your own household, you're worse than an unbeliever. And so all of these things had to be addressed by the Apostle Paul's. The next point would be those who supported, who are supported by the church must make some return to the body. And so there were individuals who were supported by the church and who couldn't help themselves. Those people were to contribute to the needs that were represented within the church. And I find it interesting, a lot of people will come to the church and they'll hold their hand out and they'll say, here, give to me. And they're not willing to give back anything. Well, there's needs that are represented in the church. How about, yeah, we're going to help you with those things, but how about you contribute as well to the church? And so there's scriptures for that that Paul would be able to give us. His next point, it is right for the church to examine moral conduct before giving support. 1 Timothy 5, 9 through 13 show us that. The support of the church should be for the most basic necessities of living, food and shelter. It's not, hey, I notice you're driving a nice car. Can you buy me a nice car? No, no, no. Your food and shelter are your basic needs and we'll help you with those. And so I think it's very important that we understand that this moment in time where God is doing a tremendous work on earth, God outside of time and space, God doing a work inside of time and space. You and I live inside of time and space we live and are governed by the clock and the calendar and so god is outside of that but god knows the end from the beginning the beginning from the end and he knows when he's going to do a work he knows what work he's going to be doing and he knows what he needs to do to be able to get people to that work that he desires to do and so in this time and space you have judaism being shut down Partial blinding or hardness of heart is going to come from God to the nation of Israel in this first century AD. And God is going to raise up an altogether new entity, the church, made up of Jews and Gentiles. And as you see the church exploding right here in the book of Acts, 
God is using his kids to be able to support the needs that are represented. So on the heels of this, let's jump to Acts chapter 5. As Barnabas is commended and Barnabas is looked uh, fondly, you have this married couple that sees this and they want part of that action. Acts chapter 5 verse 1 says, But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not in your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. God at the beginning of doing this work wants to make sure that people are in it for the right reasons. People would want to join the church for many of the wrong reasons possibly. And so God is going to make sure that purity is alive and well at the beginning. Ananias and Sapphira see Barnabas get these accolades, these kudos. And so somewhere in Ananias' heart He communicates to God, the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm going to sell all my land and I'm going to give all the proceeds to the church so that the work can continue on. And God recognizes that. And Peter comes to him and he says, if you said you were going to do one thing, why do you do another thing? The money was yours to begin with. Nobody asked you to give it. Nobody commanded you to give it. But you said you were going to give 100%. Then you held back a portion for yourself. You and your wife are in cahoots with this. This is a proof text for the deity of the Holy Spirit if you've never seen that. Verse 5, Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. Great fear is going to be quoted twice in this chapter. God is doing a work and he wants to make sure that people hold on to the fear of the Lord. What was lost by the nation of Israel and what was their demise? They had lost the fear of the Lord. They had lost to put God in his rightful place and reverence him as God. They began to question because of God's grace or maybe because of his long suffering, they thought that it was permission for sin and nothing could be further from the truth. The time period in between my sin And the consequence of my sin is something called grace. God is giving me an opportunity to respond in repentance, not license to continue in my sin. Verse 6 says, And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, carrying her out, buried her 
by her husband, so great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. We see in chapter 4, verse 33, that there was great power and great grace working in the midst of the church. We see in chapter 5, great fear came upon all those. Chapter 5 is going to go on to continue to say that nobody joined the church who wasn't serious about God and about the things of God. If we were to take an Old Testament sister passage to this, it would be Achan and the sin of Achan. Joshua would take the place of Moses. Moses would die not because he was sick or old, but because he disobeyed God. God would take him. And God would raise up in his place Joshua to lead the nation of Israel into the promised land. God tells them how to, a, a battle structure for how to take Jericho. They obey it. And then their first battle, they're going to go into Ai and take it. But God says the, the loot from this first battle the booty, the money, the, the, the wealth, you bring that into the temple. It's dedicated. It belongs to me. And one, Achan, would decide as he sees this bar of silver and this Babylonian garment shirt or something and another article, and he's like, man, he just covets it and he, he steals it and he buries it under his tent. And then they go into this next battle and they lose and they should have won easily, but they lose. And so Joshua seeks the Lord and he's like, Lord, how did we lose that battle? I mean, these guys were like, we should have, we should have took these guys easy. And God says, somebody took what was supposed to be mine. And so lots are taken, families, nations, tribes, Achan and his family stand before the Lord. Joshua says, What'd you do? He says, man, I saw these things and I coveted them and I, I just stole them and, and God wipes him and his family out. At the beginning of the nation of Israel going into the promised land to possess a land that God had promised to them, nothing on their part, just to be able to possess their possessions, to eat fruit off of trees that they didn't plant, to live in houses that they didn't build, God just had this mindset to bless the nation of Israel, bringing them out of Egyptian captivity, out of slavery, and promising them this land. At the beginning of that taking place, God said, I'm serious about what I say. I say what I mean, and I mean what I say. And Achan and his family were judged. You see the same exact thing taking place right here at the beginning of the church. If you and I were judged for the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira, we would literally have an empty church with nobody standing behind this pulpit. How often we put out there that we're something that we're not. How often we play the game of pretend to act as if receiving accolades and kudos that we don't deserve. I wrote in my notes how we do this today. Let's see if I can find it. <clears throat> this sin is imitated in many ways today. We can create or allow the impression that we are people of Bible reading and prayer when we are not. We can create or allow the impression that we have it all together when we do not. We can exaggerate our spiritual accomplishments or effectiveness to appear something we are not. 
It is too easy to be happy with the image of spirituality without the reality of spiritual life. And so God desires to be the hero of your story. God desires to be the one that is elevated in your life as the one having it figured out. And we're robbing God of his glory. We're robbing God of his goodness and what he's doing, literally doing in your life when we point to ourselves and we give the impression that it's because of something that we did or something we earned or something that we've deserved. Nothing could be further from the truth. God loves you. And God is intent on blessing you and doing an incredible work in your life. And he desires you to point to him, to let people know, to God be the glory. This is something that he's doing. This is in spite of me, not because of me. And so may we be very careful not to practice the art of hypocrisy, playing the game and pretending. So was Marx right? Is economics the catalyst that drives human history? And the answer is no. What directs human history is the creator of the universe who controls everything, including the rise and fall of every nation. In addition, God also controls who is put in charge of each nation. As scripture says, the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets it over the lowliest of men. Daniel 4.17 Further, it is God who gives a person skill at labor and wealth that comes from it, not the government. Ecclesiastes five eighteen and 19, the Bible says, Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor, in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, He also has empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God. Where we see work cursed in the garden because of sin, we see God restore. As we recognize that it's God that gives us the ability to create wealth. It's God that desires us to work and to be faithful where he has us and to provide for our needs and the needs of our families. In conclusion, to wrap this up, at the end of chapter 4, you had Barnabas, Joseph, this individual that was a Levite, coming down from the Levitical tribe. In the law, it was commanded that no Levi was to own land or property. But Barnabas had land that he sold, and God was able to use that and be able to provide for the needs, and he was commended for it. And what we see is this incredible concept. We are motivated to do far more for love than we ever will for the law. And if we put ourselves under this condemnation of rules and regulations, of do's and don'ts, it's only a matter of time before we break that law or rule. But if we respond in a love relationship to the Lord and the incredible things that he wants to do 
in our hearts and for us. Man, it's just a response to that love that will get us to a place that will do things that the law will never be able to do. It would be 1982. 82. My first date with Roxanne Castro, Bell High School. And it was my job to wash the car at home. But boy, that car never got washed like the day I was going to be able to use mom's car for that date. Love motivated me in a way that, man, armor on the tires. Made sure that it was extra waxed that day. And again, that was my job. That's what I did. It's one of the things that mom had me do at home under the rule or the law. But that day was different. Love was motivating me to do what I did. And I just thought it was extra special. And so may, may we be very careful to recognize that, yeah, you know, the Bible has a lot of us, things for us to do, right? Commandments, these rules and guidelines. But may we simply be responders to the love that God has initiated. He's the initiator. He's the one that thought of this relationship with you. And he wants that cultivated. Did you know that the nation of Israel is called the wife of God? And the church is called the bride of Christ. And when you think of a bride, you think of a brand new marriage. And if it's a brand new marriage, you think of this romantic honeymoon. That's what God desires from his church. A relationship based on something that's romantic. That that love would be fresh and thriving and on fire not something that is passe and goes away. So cultivate your love relationship with God and respond to what he's doing in your heart and in your life. And you'll see that you'll be able to accomplish far greater than any rule or regulation ever could. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just all the examples that we're able to pick up and see the things we're able to learn. And we pray, Lord, that we would cultivate that love relationship with you, that we would simply be responders. If we're not sure, that we would just stand back and wait for you to demonstrate that love and then respond to that. And that 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 would be, Lord, the legacy of our life. We could live the rest of our lives right there where we just respond to your love, Lord, because you are the initiator. You come at us relentlessly. You never tire of showing love to your bride. And so we thank you for that, Lord. And we pray that we would be good responders. In Jesus' name, amen.